The rest of us I would invite to turn to the book of Acts, chapter 4. Our text this morning is verses 13 through 22. But I'll begin reading at verse 5 to set the context for what we will hear in response from Peter and John. This is the very word of the living God. It is completely inerrant. It is completely sufficient. And it is completely authoritative. Acts chapter 4. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask that you would indeed bless your word, that you would use it to illumine our minds, to fire our hearts, to renew our wills, that we might seek the Lord Jesus Christ and that we might serve him. For it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Have you ever had that moment of gut-wrenching fear? 
where something catches you by surprise? For most children, it occurs when they are called by their first, middle, and last name by their parents. You know nothing good can come of that. Perhaps for some of you ladies, it's been when your husband has pulled you aside, the kids are in another room, and he said, you need to sit down. We need to discuss something. Perhaps you've had the experience as a man of being called to a meeting, and you walk into a room, maybe it's even a human resource room, and there are people there with somber faces. And you think, what am I in for now? This can even happen, indeed, it must happen in the Christian life. These moments of fear that grip us. You see, it is of no benefit to us as Christians today to pretend that the Christian life is all perfect and that we will never face threats and never face difficulties. And that if somehow we do, we're doing something wrong. No, if we face threats and difficulties, beloved, it is because you are doing something right. And this text here this morning shows it to us. Peter and John have been pulled in and set in front of 70 judges and literally read the riot act. And then they are shoved off into another room while their fate is determined out of their hearing. Can you imagine when you were ushered back into that room? What would you do? What questions would you ask? Would you beg for mercy? How would you deal with this situation? Well, Peter and John show us how as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, not just those who know Jesus, but who believe and trust him in everything that comes to us, how we are to respond to these difficulties. And so what I would like us to see this morning is really a reaction to the gospel. You see, first we will see an undeniable gospel that is placed before not only Peter and John, but also the Sanhedrin. What has been done is undeniable. But just because it's undeniable, doesn't mean it won't be resisted. Because we will then see the unbelieving response to an undeniable gospel in the response of the Sanhedrin. And then finally we will see the great grace that God shows to us in showing us in his word the unrestrained response of Peter and John, believers who trust their very lives to the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, let's begin then by looking at this gospel that is undeniable. What do we mean when we say this gospel is undeniable? We mean two things. First, we mean that there is the undeniable presence of Christ in their midst. And secondly, we mean that there is an undeniable power of Jesus Christ that is manifested. First, we see this undeniable presence of Jesus Christ. The Sanhedrin have done their best. They have put their scowling faces on. They have brought Peter and John and set them right in the midst, it says. And you can imagine a large semicircle, perhaps several rows high, of men staring down at them. Perhaps even whispering, this is, we might have to do what we did to that Jesus. You can imagine the difficulty. Perhaps you have been in a difficult spot like this as well. And perhaps you have wondered if Jesus Christ is with you. And here we see that Jesus is undeniably present. So undeniably present that even the Sanhedrin see it. 
Look at verse 13. Peter responds, we looked at this last week, in a perfect manner to the Sanhedrin. With respect, but also with clarity of the gospel. And their response is to see the boldness of Peter and John. Now, this word for boldness is a rich word. It has the connotation of boldness that you would think. It also carries the obvious connotation of courage or bravery. But more than that, this word comes to mean freedom and readiness of speech. What do I mean by this? I mean that they have seen that Peter responds and he is not shuffling and looking at his feet. He's not umming and awing. He's asked a question and he responds with freedom and boldness and readiness. There is no hesitation. He doesn't stop and think, now how should I really answer this? If I answer this way, but on the other hand, but on the other other hand, you see Peter is not Hamlet. He strikes right in with no hesitation. This word also reminds us of the ability of free citizens to speak their mind. This was a treasured right in Greece at the time. It is a treasured right in our nation to speak boldly, to speak our minds. Freedom of speech. And you see, often I think today, Christians believe that freedom of speech only covers political categories of speech or economic categories of speech. No, freedom of speech is given to you to proclaim the Lord Jesus Christ. We have that freedom and that boldness. You see, when they recognize the boldness of Peter and John, they realize, the Sanhedrin realize, that this is an issue of authority. They want to be in control. They want to be the drivers, and they are not. And they are saying to themselves, you know, we got rid of this Jesus, but now we, we still can't get rid of this, what do they call it? Gospel. Why can't we get rid of this? They don't respect our authority. They won't do what we say. We also see the presence of Jesus Christ in the fact that it is Peter and John speaking boldly. They are uneducated, common men, our text says. That is, they are untrained. They lack formal rabbinic training. They don't speak with a Harvard accent. They don't have sheepskin up on their walls. How can these men speak about the Old Testament? How can they teach theology? They haven't been to any of the good rabbinic schools. And they're common men. They're ignorant men. They're what we might call laymen. How can just any old believer give a testimony to what they believe? But you see, what they realize is, it dawns on them that they had been with Jesus. You see, this is not, they are not astonished that they were with Jesus. They are not uneducated because they were with Jesus. They realize that the reason that uneducated, common laymen can out-theologize them, can out-Bible them, is because they were with Jesus. It's, it's kind of like this, to give you an illustration. It's kind of like the Karate Kid. This is making a comeback today. And you know the story of the Karate Kid. There's this janitor that, you know, no one thinks is a maintenance man. He doesn't know anything. 
He doesn't have the good robes that all the other good karate teachers have. He doesn't have all the other equipment. He has paint the fence and wax on, wax off. These are not educated ways to learn karate. But what happens? You see, it's not in the robes. It's not in the equipment. It's in the authority and the skill and the power. And that is what Jesus had. He did not have a rabbinic school, but he had all authority and all power. And as the disciples were going around from place to place thinking, why are we feeding these people? Why do we have to stop here and help this man? Why are we talking to this lady at the well? There's a sense in which they are doing paint the fence. Wax on, wax off. And now Peter realizes that all of those things that he did for three years had a purpose. They taught him the scriptures. They taught him to be bold. And so Peter and John are uneducated. They are laymen, but they have the power of the presence of Jesus Christ. Do you know that power? You have that power if you haven't gone to seminary. If you don't have three PhDs. Even if you haven't gone to college, if you study your scriptures by the power of the Holy Spirit and lean on the Lord Jesus Christ, you know more about the scriptures than all of these Jesus seminar academics. The presence of Christ. But there's also the undeniable power of Christ before the Sanhedrin. Because after all, there's a man who's been lame from birth. 40 years in front of them. And the miracle is undeniable. There's an irony here. Look at verse 14. They see the man who was healed doing what? Standing before them. You might have think, maybe they didn't have a chair. You think they'd want to put this guy in a chair because he's standing before them. The very fact of the trial is testimony that they have done a good deed. The undeniable power of Jesus Christ in this miracle. And it's interesting that the Greek word that is used here for standing is half of the Greek word for resurrection. Resurrection just means to stand up. You see, the Greeks thought of those who were resurrected as standing up and those who were dead as lying down. And so they are reminded not only that he has been healed, but he has been healed by resurrection power. How can they deny this? They can't, and even if they tried, the cat is already out of the bag, the horse is out of the barn, whatever other idiom you want to use. It is spreading like wildfire. Even Smokey the Bear can't put out this fire. It is going throughout all of Jerusalem. It is a well-known miracle. That's what they say. What shall we do for a notable sign? And that means that it is well-known, well-attested. In the same way that we saw before that this man was well known as a lame man. Everyone knew him as they walked by. And now this miracle is well known. And the healing is obvious. And the other thing that is against them is that it's obviously a good thing. Who wants to stand in a courtroom and say, yes, your honor, it would be better if this man never walked again? It's obvious and it's obviously good. The power of the gospel has been manifested right in front of them. This is the undeniable gospel. But you see, 
even though it is undeniable, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, they will turn their heads. They will be unwilling, they will be unbelieving. And you see, that is the problem that they face. The problem they face is they don't know how to respond. How do we respond to this? We can't believe this because if we believe this, everything we've been saying and doing is wrong and we'd actually have to repent of crucifying Jesus like this poor, uneducated fisherman says. And I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to eat that kind of crow. But how do we respond, they say to each other? What do we do? And so in responding, they show their weakness. They show that they do not have gospel power. Look at verse 15. When they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another. So they show their weakness in the process. They've got to go into executive session. Because they're not sure what to do. And they certainly don't want Peter and John hearing the deliberations. So you guys go off into a corner and let's figure out. They don't have a plan. There is a real sense in which they are clueless about what to do. They have no good options in front of them. And so they're showing weakness in the process. But they also show their weakness in the decision. Look at verse 18. So they called to them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Now think about that. Parents. Let's take a purely hypothetical situation because we know that all of your children are the best behaved. Let's hypothetically assume that you catch your child in a bold lie. And you say to them, you know, don't do that again. If you do it again, I may think about punishing you. So there. Is that effective parenting? No. No. You see, but they've got nowhere to go. You see, what you would do is, you would say, you can't do that anymore, and impress that upon you, I'm going to visit some form of punishment. It might be a spanking, it might be a grounding, it might be a job, but you would visit a punishment to make that clear. But you see, they, they can't come up with a punishment, because what are they going to punish them for? Healing a guy? You see, they're caught in a trap, and so they're weak, and they're showing the weakness of their hand. This is like what the world does to you and to me. What do they come up with? Well, you know, if you're a Christian, you must be pretty gullible. Oh, no, you called me gullible. I'm going to fall down. Well, you know, if you're a Christian, you don't have much sense or belief in science. Everyone knows the world was created out of nothing by no one, and it all worked out perfectly. Oh, you're criticizing my knowledge of science. Be still my heart. You see, this is the kind of persecution we face in America. We don't face the same kind of persecution that they do in China or India. The persecution that comes to us comes to our ego. We don't want to be thought unlearned. We don't want to be thought common or lay. We want to be thought of people with education and sheepskins and knowledge and respect. And that's where Satan attacks us. But you see, we must be like Peter and John. We must know that the emperor has no clothes. We must know they have no arguments of substance against us. And the best they can do is ridicule. It is the equivalent of a four PhD saying, na-na-na-na-na-na, 
That's the best he can come up with. You see, they don't know how they can respond. And they really don't offer any real opposition. You see what it says here in verse 14? When they saw the man that was standing there who was healed, they offered no opposition. They had nothing to say in opposition. Why do you think that is? Do you think it was because they were off their game? It was not their regular meeting time? Maybe you think it was solely due to Peter and John's eloquence. No. It was because of the promise of God that they offered no opposition. Because you see, our Lord Jesus Christ said in Luke 21, verse 15, I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. Same verb. They were not able to contradict. Because Jesus said they would not, because Jesus would provide them with a mouth to speak. That promise is not just to Peter. That promise is not just to John. That promise is to homemakers. That promise is to children. That promise is to men. The Lord Jesus Christ will give you a mouth that none will be able to contradict. Spin campaigns and advertising campaigns can't change the truth. And so when they face this problem, what we see here is they don't really want to respond to Peter. They don't really want to get a response to what's going on. They really desire to counter what is going on. You see, the response that they give shows their heart. Now think about this. A man has just been healed. He's been a beggar for decades. He's jumping all over the place. Literally. People outside in the temple courts are praising God. Everyone is joyous and giving praise to God. And they come in and the only thing that they can think of is, how do we squash it? They have no joy. They give no praise to God. They could care less that this man can stand. You see, all they want to do is counter what is going on. They are failing to appreciate the work of God. Secondly, they are failing to rejoice and praise, to join in. Now think about what that takes. Have you ever been out with friends or had guests over and you had a really miserable day? Maybe a bad day at work or a bad day doing something? And they're all around you and they're laughing and joking it up and talking and enjoying each other. Do you know how hard it is to remain miserable in that context? If you're like me, you excuse yourself and you go to the restroom or you go into another room. It's, it's almost impossible. Now imagine this context. In God's temple, there is perhaps the greatest display of praise for God that has occurred in weeks. And they got to remain old sourpuss. That's really hard. How can they do that? You see, the response is about their heart, not about their head. You see, they can remain critical because of their hearts. They don't want to believe it. They want to reject it. They don't want this Jesus. They don't want this grace. They don't want this healing. What they want is what they know and they're in charge of. There's a lesson here for us. Perhaps there's also a lesson here if you have not come to put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Perhaps you are saying to yourself, well, if only I could know God created the world. If only I could get a sign that Jesus is real. If only, if only. This text proves that if a miracle happens right in front of you, that will not make you believe. It is only the work of the Holy Spirit that can give faith. This miracle is completely lost on the Sanhedrin. And so what they do as they're testing this problem is they propose a solution. They have their little sidebar discussion. You can almost imagine it. What do we do? Well, let's threaten them. No, no, no. Let's really threaten them. No, no, no. Let's really, really threaten them. And so this foolish discussion goes on. And they say, okay, now we got it. What are we going to do? All right, who's going to give the threats? Who's got the best scowl this morning? Who could stand next to him and go like this? All right, let's get it ready. Are we ready? Okay, we're ready. Now let's bring them in. Let's look meaner, twice as mean as we were last time, guys. Come on. They've been out there. I'm sure they're shaking in their boots. Now is the time that we can get them to buckle under. We are just about at victory. All we've got to do is stick together and stay mean and threaten, and they will knuckle under. Jesus didn't, but these guys, they're not Jesus. They will knuckle under. And so they bring them in. And they make these threats. And these are not soft threats. These kind of threats, these warnings are sharp. They're the kind said with that edge in your voice. Maybe even with an illustration or two. And so they bring them in and they give all these threats. Now we need to understand the context just a little bit to understand the threat. Judea and Jerusalem was under the control of the Romans. There was a Roman governor, Pilate, at the time of our Lord's crucifixion. But the Romans had kind of a hands-off policy in foreign lands. As long as people were quiet and tax money flowed in and things got done, they were happy to stay off to the side. If those things didn't happen, then watch out. And so the Sanhedrin cut a deal with the Romans. They said, okay, listen, listen. You let us be in charge of the local stuff. You let us, you back us up. And we'll make sure things are quiet, the tax money rolls in, and things get done. Deal? And the Romans said, deal. So when the Sanhedrin say this to Peter and John, it is not just the Kiwanis Club. It is the very power of an omnipotent state. There's no Bill of Rights. There's no federal gov uh, judicial panel. There's no avenue of appeal. This is rule by the sword. And so what they are trying to do is do damage control and trying to use all of the power that they can. And so they make these threats. And if we're honest, sometimes threats can be effective. It is amazing how compliant some children or even husbands can be from a look. You know that, right? Dad gives a look to the kids. Mom gives a look to the kids or even to husband. You know what I'm thinking here. And so they're trying to use this look, trying to use this threat. And what are they seeking to stop? Are they seeking to stop healings? 
Do they want Peter and John to go out and break this guy's knees so he can't stand anymore? No, what they want to stop is not the miracle. What they want to stop is the gospel. That's what they're concerned about. They're thinking to themselves, yeah, 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 that's great. He can walk. 20 minutes from now, people will forget about him. And you may be saying to yourself, but no, everyone will remember. He's well known. How many people in America today remember the event of 9-11? Do you remember not 9-11, but 10-11 and 12-11 when many of us hoped that there would be a revival in the land, that people would seek their creator and see that our lives held by a string? It was like, what, six months, a year And people forgot about the significance of it. Sure, they remembered it as a historical event, but they forgot about it as a spiritual event. And what the Sanhedrin are counting on is that a week or two or a month from now, they'll remember, wasn't there some guy that got healed? Yeah, but they'll forget in the name of Jesus Christ. And the only way they can get there is to say to Peter and John, you can't say in the name of Jesus Christ anymore. The people have got to forget this. You see, what they want them to forget is the gospel. This is the dilemma that Peter and John are faced with. What do they do? It's a dilemma that many of us are faced with. Do we speak? How do we speak? How do we interact with others, especially with the state? And we see here that Peter and John speak with an unrestrained response. First, they reject unbiblical responses. The first response they could have given was to deny the gospel. You know that old strategy, when you meet resistance, give up. They could have said, well, you know, you're right. Um, We were really out of line. We won't do this anymore. Um, As a matter of fact, we don't really even believe anymore. This is the response of the 19th and 20th century church. Maybe there might be some scientific evidence of evolution. We give up. God didn't create the world. Someone makes you feel bad that you have to be a Christian to go to heaven. Oh, you're right. There are many ways to heaven. This is the response, generally, of the weak church. Peter and John rejected this. They could have taken another, perhaps more ancient response. That is, not to give up, but to flee to flee the world. You know the old fight or flight response? Well, they could flee. This was the response of the monks. You know, the world is wicked and they're going to give us criticism and they don't believe in Jesus and everything they do is horrible. We need to find a place where we never run into any sinners ever again. And so you go out to the desert. There's only one problem. Somebody sitting in the middle of the desert is a tourist attraction. So people follow them out there. And you get to the point where you reach absurdity, that there was a man named Simon who lived on top of a 70-foot pillar for 30 years, just so he could be sure never to have to be involved with those sinners. So an unbiblical response would be to give up or to flee the world. A third unbiblical response would be to give in to the world This is the response that sees the church and the state or God and the state and sees the state as more authoritative. Well, you know, I would like to preach the gospel, but 
The state is telling me I can't. And you know Romans 13 says that all authorities are from God, so I have to obey the state. So if the state tells me to deny Jesus, I have to deny Jesus. I don't really want to, but I have to listen to the state. The state really gets upset about me creating a culture of violence by speaking about abortion. I just won't ever preach about abortion again. If the state is concerned about a culture of inequality by preaching from the Bible on homosexuality, then I I just better not ever do that again. You see, this also is a typical response in the world today. And this has a continuum to where it gets to the point where it becomes ACLU think. That is, well, you know, you can be a Christian, I suppose, if you're not that bright. Just don't take your Christianity out of your house. I don't want to see it in the grocery store because, you know, there's federal labeling of food. I don't want to see it in the streets because, you know, there's federal money that pays for lights. I don't want to see it in colleges because, you know, there's federal money there. So you can have your Christianity. Just stay in your house. Oh, and don't tell your children and speak very quietly to each other. And this is also where we are headed. But Peter and John, who are faced with an immediate threat, reject all of this. And they embrace a biblical response. And the biblical response is this, that there is something called sphere sovereignty. You know what a sphere is. It's like a ball. And in your life, there are various spheres. There is the state... The family, the church, your job, there are various spheres in your life. And so the state has real authority. You can't say, I don't care what the state says, they're wicked. If they tell me to drive 55 miles an hour, I'm driving 90. You can't say, oh, I don't care what the state says, they're wicked. If they say I have to be 21 to drink alcohol, I'll drink it at 15 if I want. The state has authority within its sphere. But you see, what the state needs to learn is so does God. God has authority in his sphere. You see, the state is not autonomous. The state's power and authority actually is derived from God. They are not independent. You know our system of government with the checks and balances? Our system of checks and balances has a check and a balance. He's called God. And so it doesn't matter if the president signs a law saying anyone can have an abortion anytime they want. And Congress says, we'll fund that to the max. And the Supreme Court says, yippee. God still says, thou shalt not murder. And he trumps it. You see, God's authority is supreme. His authority is the ultimate authority. He is the source and the context of authority, And it is the job of the church to speak prophetically about that authority. And so a church that is afraid to speak on abortion, a church that is afraid to speak about the roles of men and women, a church that is afraid to speak about the truth of the scriptures is no church at all. The church is not called to do politics. You will never hear from this pulpit who you should vote for. Or what law should be passed. But you will hear from this pulpit, Lord willing. The truth of the scriptures applied to our lives. Because if the church will not speak to this, who will? Who else has the truth of God? Does the state? 
Do clubs? Do companies? Only the church has the word of God. And that is why Peter boldly speaks, because he knows it is only he and John who have the story of Jesus to project. And it must go forward. If they hold back the gospel, who will preach the gospel? Now, what does this mean? It means there must be, on Peter and John's part and on our part, a willingness to suffer. Because, you see, they were not guaranteed a free pass. Those threats could have come true. They could have been attacked. They could have been killed. They knew the Lord Jesus had been killed. So speaking your mind takes bravery. But it also takes a willingness to suffer. We don't expect always to be vindicated, always to get the winning side. But we stand for the truth because that's what we are called to do. And so what this means is you can see the clear difference. Look at the two parties. The Sanhedrin are at a loss what to do. Peter and John are joyful. The Sanhedrin are afraid to say what they really think. Peter and John are speaking openly. The Sanhedrin are dreading. They are afraid to have this report go out. Peter and John are unable not to speak. So I ask you, who is the free one here? Remember that next time someone threatens you. Your freedom is found in the gospel and in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, because Peter and John understood the difference, they understood what it took, and their focus was not on themselves, but on the kingdom. Several times now in this series, we've been talking about kingdom focus. That's what Acts is all about, about building the kingdom. See, Peter and John said to themselves, Jesus suffered, why shouldn't I? They said to themselves, you know, we have to give the gospel. As Paul says, it will be the savor, the smell of life to some, but of death to others. But we can't worry about that. We've got to bring forth the gospel. You see, this is as applicable today in 2010 as it was then. Same Jesus Christ, same Holy Spirit, same power of God, same mission. Are you ready for that challenge of kingdom building? Are you ready for those blows to your ego? If you are, we will see the kingdom of God expand and unfold before our very eyes as the Holy Spirit brings about that. Is this what you desire to see? It is what I long for and my longing for you. To trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and to let the chips fall where they may. Let's pray.